Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. He's a keen walker. He's a very busy father to two little ones and he's a passionate defender of human rights and social justice. Please join me in welcoming Hugh. Thanks very much, Joe. Thanks for that introduction. And uh, to Joan, sorry you can't be here, and um, it was great to meet you last week. And uh, uh, while you're in a lot of pain, your passion for human rights and social justice absolutely came uh, strongly through and uh, influenced what I'm talking about today. Uh, so I want to start by acknowledging that we're meeting on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and sincerely pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I'm going to start today uh, in East Gippsland talking about bushwalking. I'm a keen bushwalker and it's in the beautiful country of East Gippsland that I've spent probably the most time walking and hiking and on an overnight hike about eight years ago, I uh, had some lunch, fell asleep in a beautiful spot just off the beach and I woke up to find that I was lying next to uh, a shell midden where the uh, original inhabitants, the um, Gunai Kurnay people, had uh, been eating shellfish in the same beautiful location, discarding the shells, formed a pile uh, over thousands of years that remained there till today. And that realisation uh, jolted me made me realise that while I'd been drawn to the natural beauty of East Gippsland, I knew little or nothing about its indigenous history. So I returned from the hike and started doing something about it. I spoke to friends, I read books, interviewed a local Gunno Kurnow man uh, who was passionate about his culture, his society, and I wrote about it in a bushwalking magazine. One of the books I read was Caledonia Australis by the writer and historian Don Watson, the book recounts the frontier history of Gippsland and the cultural clash, the misunderstanding, the murder and the dispossession that featured the uh, early settlement by Scottish pastoralists. And Don Watson, of course, is known for uh, the famous Redfern speech that he wrote for Paul Keating, rightly seen as a landmark speech in Australian history. And the speech, I read it again last night, it really is remarkable for its sense of history and its perspective. But why am I talking about this at the start of the Joan Kerner social justice oration? Uh, really for two reasons. Firstly, because we all, and particularly someone like me, have a lot to thank Joan Kerner for, for her great efforts as Victoria's Minister for Conservation in protecting large parts of East Gippsland within national parks, and in particular for expanding the priceless Crow Jingalong National Park. And secondly, because in a recent interview with our community, Joan Kerner, in an interview on leadership, Joan Kerner identified the lack of understanding of the lessons of history as one of the key barriers preventing new leaders from emerging in Australia. So today I'm going to talk about the lessons of history and Australian human rights history in particular. And I take this topic on with a, a little bit of trepidation because I realised last night that it was Joan who, as Minister for Education, introduced the Victorian Certificate of Education which governed my final year at high school in 1991. Uh, so Joan, I hope I make the grade with my history. Human rights history interests me less because I want to know what happened, about, what happened decades ago and more because of what it tells us about social justice today. 
and how we can advance human rights today. In other words, I want to look back to look forwards. And I'll start briefly with the basics. Human rights are the fundamental rights and freedoms that belong to all people. They embody the key principles of freedom, respect, equality and dignity. Human rights span political and civil rights such as freedom of speech, freedom of association and the right to life and economic, social and cultural rights such as rights to education, to health and to housing. Most human rights can lawfully be restricted. They're not absolute but in broad terms any restriction must be for a legitimate purpose and that restriction must be reasonable and it must be proportionate. So, for example, freedom of speech is not an absolute right and can lawfully be restricted to prevent defamation, to stop threats to kill, to stop false advertising and to prevent child pornography. A more common everyday example is drink driving laws, something that affects anyone who drives. Our laws authorise police to stop drivers innocently going about their business uh, with no suspicion whatsoever of wrongdoing and administer a breath test. If you do refuse to administer the breath test, you'll uh, to uh, do the breath test, you'll lose your licence and cop a hefty fine. These laws limit our freedom of movement and our privacy rights, but they do so to protect against the threat to our rights to life and to our personal safety that drunk drivers pose. So these aims are clearly legitimate, and the means to achieve them, in broad terms, are reasonable and proportionate. So under a human rights analysis, the policy outcome is sound. Survey research shows that Australians care deeply about human rights and making sure that they're properly protected. Most Australians think human rights are important and a majority support stronger protections including an Australian Human Rights Charter or a Bill of Rights. Australians want to know more about human rights and they want the, both the government and the courts to protect rights. But dig deeper and the research shows that Australian support for human rights depends on who the humans are. A major survey on Australian attitudes to rights was conducted as part of the National Human Rights Consultation. This was the panel led by Frank Brennan that recommended in 2009 that Australian, Australia should introduce a Human Rights Act, a Bill of Rights, a recommendation that was rejected by the Rudd government. The survey asked 1,200 randomly selected Australians whether the amount of protection given to some groups should be more, less or the same as it currently is. About three quarters of respondents thought that the disabled, the elderly and people with a mental illness need more rights protection than they currently get. A slim majority thought that children and Indigenous Australians living in remote areas need more protection. Less than a third thought that gays and lesbians need more protection and a greater proportion of respondents thought that asylum seekers need less protection than more. In other words, there's more community support for stripping back asylum seeker rights than there is for increasing it. And uh, Joe and I have worked on uh, prison rights issues uh, for a long time and uh, the, the survey didn't ask about prisoner rights, for example, or the rights of people suspected of terror suspects, but you can guess, I think, fairly that they would rank down the bottom with asylum seekers. The survey results confirmed what many of us might intuitively suspect that when it comes to rights protection there's a hierarchy of sympathy in public opinion. Equal rights for some but not for all. But while 
Australians think some individuals deserve more rights than others. We're not overly concerned about our own rights protection. I say we in the general sense. For many Australians, human rights violations are something that happens to other people in other places, either overseas, in North Korea, in the Congo or Syria, or to other people in Australia in very different life circumstances, people in remote Aboriginal communities, in detention centres or psychiatric institutions. Only 10% of respondents to this survey reported that they had ever had their own human rights infringed in any way, and the large majority of people agreed that human rights in Australia are adequately protected. And I just want to pause there. Firstly, because I think it's genuinely good news that the vast majority of Australians say that their rights have never been infringed, their own rights. But secondly, because I think there are major problems with the assertion that rights in Australia are adequately protected. And the fact that many Australians think this and think that the rights of groups like asylum seekers should be stripped back underscores the challenge for us here who believe in social justice. The perception that rights are adequately protected in Australia sits very uncomfortably against some key facts. The large gap in life expectancy between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. The fact that if you're an Aboriginal man between aged between 18 and 34, you're statistically more likely to be in jail than you are to be enrolled in higher education, including TAFE. The 100,000 or so homeless people in Australia, the fact that less than 10% of directors in the 200 largest publicly listed companies are women, the fact that around one in three Australian women over the age of 15 has experienced physical or sexual violence, the even higher rates of violence, sexual violence against women with cognitive disabilities, acquired brain injury, intellectual disability or mental illness, the research showing Australians with foreign sounding surnames uh, less likely to secure job interviews, the high rates of abuse and discrimination experienced by gay, lesbian, bisexuals, transgender and intersex Australians and the 1,000 or so children currently detained in immigration detention. But relative comfort on rights protections is nothing new. Former Prime Minister Robert Menzies proclaimed in 1967 that the rights of individuals in Australia are as adequately protected as they are in any other country in the world. And he and other people who made similar comments, they absolutely meant what they said. They believed it. And with hindsight, we can look back and uh, point to the gaping holes in these sentiments. The government policies until the late 1960s, which caused the forced removal of Aboriginal children from their families. The criminalisation of consensual, consensual, consensual homosexual sex. The White Australia policy entrenched sexual discrimination and the fact that in 1967 it was perfectly legal to refuse to employ someone because of their race, religion or sex because there were no anti-discrimination laws in Australia other than in progressive South Australia which introduced them in 1966. Victoria didn't get anti-discrimination laws until 1977 and one of the best cases that shows how far we've come involved Deborah Wardley who applied in the 1970s to become the first female pilot at ANSET. ANSET refused her application and the general manager wrote in a letter, ANSET has adopted a policy of employing only men as pilots. This does not mean that women cannot be good pilots. But we are concerned with the provision of the safest and most efficient air service possible. 
In this regard, we feel that an all-male pilot crew is safer than one in which the sexes are mixed. And in argument, I understand that they raised menstrual cycles as a reason uh, against employing uh, female pilots. So Deborah Wardley challenged the refusal to employ her under the new laws and she won and eventually, and it wasn't easy for her, went on to a successful career as a commercial pilot. And just on the White Australia policy, my own family's history highlights the prejudice and incoherence of the policy and also how fortunate I am to have grown up here in Australia. My father's family are Dutch Burgess Sri Lankans, the descendants of Dutch and Portuguese who colonised Sri Lanka in the 16th and 17th century and who were of mixed European and Sri Lankan descent. The only reason my father's family was able to immigrate to Australia in 1949 under the White Australia policy was by proving their European heritage, by tracing our family line back to a sailor, Cornelius de Kretzer, who sailed out of the port of Texel in Holland for Sri Lanka in the 1600s. But apparently the arrival of European Sri Lankans with non-European appearances caused consternation in Australia. And in 1951, the Department of Immigration told the Australian High Commission in Colombo it should not authorise the entry of persons who are likely to cause adverse comment on arrival or be restricted from landing by immigration officers at the ports as being predominantly non-European in appearance. And it struck me on the train reading this uh, as I came in this morning that that statement might be applied to our current asylum seeker policy. So in many ways my family was lucky. My grandparents, like others, sought the promise of a better life in Australia and this promise was realised by the opportunities available to me and my brothers and perhaps best shown by the fact that my father arrived at Station Pier as a nine-year-old Sri Lankan boy and went on to serve as Victoria's Governor from 2006 to 2011. My point is, we can look back in hindsight at the White Australia policy and the stolen generations and be shocked at these attitudes and the lack of legal protection against them. But in a similar way, I have no doubt that in 40 years, Australians will look, on, look back on today's society and think, what were they doing? What were we doing? There was majority support for same-sex marriage, yet neither major party acted on it. They locked up thousands of refugees fleeing persecution, arbitrary detention and torture in remote detention camps in Australia, and then outsourced that detention and the rights abuses to former colonies in the South Pacific. They had one of the strongest economies in the world, and yet income, equality, income inequality was increasing, the gender pay gap was increasing, and Indigenous infant mortality was twice the rate of other Australian babies. So what can we do about it? How can we avoid a 79-year-old me looking back in 2013 and thinking we didn't do enough? It's a huge topic and there are many answers to this, but I wanted to end by focusing on three. Human rights education, the legal protection of rights and a rights culture. I studied human rights at university, but I didn't get my real rights education about rights breaches and the lack of formal and informal protection against them until I started working, as Joe said, in a community legal centre in Melbourne's West, helping people to deal with family violence, childhood sexual assault, mental illness, helping prisoners, refugees, people in deep poverty and ill health, people struggling with entrenched disadvantage. I don't need to tell you this. For most of you here today, in one way or another, this is the work you do. It's the work that has framed Joan Kerner's career. 
working in a nursing home, in a drug and alcohol counselling centre, in a school in a disadvantaged area or in a sexual assault crisis centre brings you into contact with the sharp end of human rights issues. Caring for a relative with dementia or seeing a friend discriminated against brings home this proximity and this understanding. And for some, the experience of the fragility of rights will be far more personal through the perspective of being a person with a disability, a migrant or a victim of violence. The challenge for us who care about social justice is to broaden the understanding that while most Australians are doing well, there are some who aren't and we need to take action to address it. The 2009 Human Rights Consultation recommended that education be the highest priority for improving and protecting human rights in Australia. And while at first the lawyer in me struggled with this, Human Rights Act or Human Rights Education, I now agree with it. We need to build understanding of what human rights are and how they work and how they aren't adequately protected in Australia and what this means for vulnerable Australians. And we need to do this through our school curriculum, through the media, through websites, through social media, through volunteering and through forums like this. But education alone is not enough. We also need stronger legal protection of human rights. In many ways they go hand in hand. The Racial Discrimination Act in 1975 established legal protections against racial prejudice. But it's the actions of Nikki Winmar and Adam Goods that help to educate and build a culture of not tolerating prejudice. Legal protection of human rights tends to matter most for Australians who don't enjoy majority or political support. And this is where the human rights principle of universality can really help. The key human rights treaties which bind Australia and over 160 nations around the world embody the fundamental principle that rights are universal. They attach to us by the mere reason of our being human, regardless of popular or political support. And the anti-apartheid activist Steve Biko has an interesting quote that he said, which I read recently, where he said, white South Africans need to realise that they're only human, they're merely human, and black South Africans need to realise that they are human. So I've always come at it with the perspective of bringing everyone up. He saw it in a different way. Some people aren't superior. Everyone is the same. Rights are to be enjoyed by all. The principle of universality embodies what Joan Kerner described in her oration at this conference last year as our common humanity. And the flip side of the universality of human rights is that when rights aren't enjoyed equally, it diminishes our society as a whole. As Paul Keating said in the Redfern speech, the treatment of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders over our history degraded all of us. The key treaties stem from the landmark 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a document forged from the horrors of World War II. These treaties, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights enjoy bipartisan support. The Whitland government signed them and the Fraser government ratified them and both those steps are required to bind Australia and international law. The treaties and the rights set out in them are intended to place limits on government action. Human rights, rights opponents say there's a transfer of power from the elected government to the unelected judiciary and that's right. I think we should accept that. I think we should agree that that's what we want. We want unelected judges protecting rights where our, our democratic processes, our representative government, responding to popular will, won't protect them. 
Human rights treaties are intended to focus government's attention on rights issues and protect against popular will, overriding the fundamental freedoms of minorities. Yet the treaties aren't adequately incorporated into Australian law. International law doesn't automatically become incorporated into domestic Australian law when we ratify a treaty. It needs to be implemented by legislation passed by state or federal parliament. And the main way to implement international human rights treaties is through a Bill of Rights or a Charter of Rights. Unlike every Western nation, unlike the UK, unlike Canada, unlike New Zealand, unlike the United States, we have no legislative or constitutional Bill of Rights in Australia. Instead, we rely on a patchwork of individual pieces of legislation and judge-made common law, and the patchwork has holes in it. The citizenship test, uh, remember the citizenship test? I read it again last night. It's supposed to test whether prospective citizens know enough about Australia and the responsibilities and privileges of citizenship. The questions are based on a resource booklet that tells aspiring Australian citizens about our society, our culture and our values and it has separate sections devoted to freedom and to equality. It talks about freedom of speech, freedom of association, gender equality and equality of opportunity. But it doesn't talk about how these rights are inadequately protected in Australia and difficult to enforce under Australian law. Freedom of speech, for example, is not well protected under Australian law and the protection that there is stems from a strained interpretation of implied rights in our constitution. Even the right to vote isn't expressly pr protected in our constitution and, and my centre ran a case uh, to establish constitutional recognition of the right to vote for an Indigenous woman who was in prison and denied by legislation uh, rights, voting rights by the Howard government. Only in Victoria and ACT have state and territory based human rights charters which protect free speech. And to give one example of how they work, we can look at the recent issue with Victorian public housing guidelines. These guidelines were introduced by the Victorian government earlier this year. They banned residents from holding political rallies on housing estates. They banned residents from placing political material on common notice boards. They banned door knocking on housing estates by politicians. And these bans came against the backdrop of residents organising and protesting against the government's public housing policy. So we worked with two residents to write to the relevant minister and her department relying on the free speech and the peaceful assembly rights in the Victorian Charter to ask that the policies be withdrawn and reviewed. And I'm happy to say the government is currently doing that. It would have been much harder if we were in New South Wales, any other state in Australia, to get that result. We use the Charter, we use the rights in the Charter, we use the obligation of public authorities to enforce those rights to say you need to review those policies. Human rights education and legal protections both contribute in turn to a rights culture, a culture of understanding and respecting rights. And lawmaking processes set up by the Victorian Charter show how a rights culture can work to benefit society. In Victoria, any proposed legislation introduced to the Parliament must be accompanied by a statement from the relevant minister assessing its compatibility with human rights. A parliamentary committee then independently assesses that statement against human rights protections and the bill. These processes, which are by no means fail-safe in guaranteeing protection, focus attention on human rights. They help to identify where rights are impacted and where they are impacted, they help to ensure that any li limitation on a right is for a legitimate aim and is tailored towards meeting that aim. And this in turn promotes better policy outcomes for government and for Victorians.
So to conclude, I think we've come a long way in protecting human rights in Australia, but the advances in our rights protection didn't come easily at the time and yet they're easily taken for granted now. Human rights are still vulnerable for many in Australia and particularly for those who don't enjoy popular support. In her oration last year, Joan Kerner noted the gains that have been made and urged us not to give up hope, telling us to get together, get angry and get organised. And so we should. I believe the human rights framework has a key role to play in that action. Better education about human rights, a stronger human rights culture and an enforceable human rights charter or Bill of Rights are three key ways we could improve rights protection to realise the promise of human rights for all Australians. Thanks. Well, uh, thank you, Hugh. Now was going to be a time for uh, Joan to make a response, but uh, she's not here and I know exactly what she would do. She would say, over to the people. Let them make the response. And so you're invited to do that now. So put your hand up high and we've got microphones around that will come. I've got one down there, straight in front of me. Just uh, Before we start, Hugh, um, rights education and legal protection, even with those, it's increasingly difficult for some people to get access to justice through the legal system. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of other 30-minute speeches I could have done yeah. today. One was about uh, the... So rights are meaningless uh, without the means to enforce them. In my previous job for the past seven years, I've been working on access to justice and the problems of access to justice in Australia and the fact that uh, for most Australians, uh, for anything but the most basic legal issue, uh, you can't afford to pay for a lawyer what we need to do. It's not all about lawyers. There are some things that people can uh, self-advocate, advocate with assistance from others, uh, but there is a, a, an absolute crisis in access to justice in Australia and rights are nice if they're written down in law, but if you can't enforce them, they're meaningless. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Decretor, for your... Uh, Hugh is fine. Oh, Hugh, thank you for your speech. It was wonderful. I'm just wondering, the media in this country seems very strong at times. I'm just wondering how you think they work within the framework of human rights or communities' feelings. I hope I've said that right. Sure. I, I don't think they work within the framework of human rights. I think they work within the framework of... Uh, uh, well, in the commercial media at least, uh, what sells newspapers and what uh, creates uh, advertising revenue. So in the criminal justice sphere, uh, you know, we, we have this incessant call for harsher penalties. Uh, uh, it's focused on selling papers. There's research that has been done which shows that uh, media coverage of uh, criminal justice issue disproportionately focuses on violence. Uh, underestimates the so people have done tests and people underestimate the um, sentences that are handed out by judges. Um, underestimate sorry overestimate the amount of violence. Uh, expect the crime rates are always increasing when they've actually fallen for the last 10 years uh, in general. Um, and uh, so what 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 what's the impact of this? Uh, it's why our prison population in Victoria has gone up 40 percent. And who are we jailing? We're jailing the most disadvantaged. So uh, uh, I've got Joan sort of sitting here saying, talk about education. 6.5% uh, of Victorian male prisoners finished high school mm. uh, or its equivalent. 
and you have the Victorian government cutting the Victorian Certificate Applied Learning, uh, cutting TAFE funding, um, so it's, it's counterproductive and uh, it's a result of the media focus on those issues. Uh, I was very pleasantly surprised to read the Weekend Australian where there was, I don't know if anyone saw the big photo of a gay couple talking about the impact and the fear of prejudice on them, an older couple uh, who uh, were talking about health services and accommodation services and we've been advocating for uh, just a small amendment to the current bill in the federal parliament to say that religious organisations should not be able to discriminate in the provision of Commonwealth funded aged care services and the Australian has been running a campaign against stronger anti-discrimination laws so it's a complete turnaround for them to have that photo and have a story and having the voices of those impacted by discrimination featuring in the media debate and reflecting on our own role, uh, it's our failure to allow that debate to be framed in that way and we need to do better to get those voices out there, to get the stories, and this is what I'm talking about, about human rights education, uh, so that uh, those who... It, it, Andrew Bolt was portrayed as the victim of, of this debate. You know, it, we can't have a media debate where that's the frame. Thank you. Uh, right over there on your right, Hugh. Hello. Is this on? Hi, I'm from Nimbin. I'm manager of a neighbourhood centre up there, but I also was the chair of Northern Rivers Community Legal Centre yep. for six years. I'm just wondering, Angela given Pollard. what... Sorry? Angela Pollard. <laughs> That's the one. Yep. Um, given what Kerry Arabena was saying about the significance of biodiversity and the recognition of sentient beings in, in the context of human rights in a bigger sense, how do you think the sector needs uh, to deal best with recent government policies which are threatening to withdraw funding from community legal centres and also legal aid if they represent um, clients who have um, engaged in environmental actions uh, to defend the environment against the actions of, in particular, for example, Northern Rivers, the actions of CSG companies? Yep. Um, how do you think we can deal with this where obviously that's going to be a significant denial to social justice for these people who put their bodies and lives on the line to try and protect our environment on behalf of everyone in our nation? Yep. So I'd broaden it beyond. I know, I know that the Conservative governments are focusing on environmental activism, um, you know, uh, what have they defunded, tenancy services in Queensland, focused on environmental advocacy, uh, Job Watch was defunded in Victoria, so you have classic conservative areas where the defunding is happening. When I started at my previous job in 2007, it was in the climate of uh, the then Attorney General saying that uh, community legal centres should not be advocating political causes but should be serving their clients. And it's a completely misplaced agenda. Uh, so uh, w well worth reading is a book like Forces for Good which studied the, uh, a range of non-profits and distilled the six key... Uh, practices of high impact non-profits and these are non-profits across the entire spectrum, conservative non-profits, progressive non-profits, range of areas and number one on their list was combining service delivery and advocacy. So they say if you want to achieve your mission as a non-profit, don't do service delivery alone, don't do advocacy alone, you need to learn from your service delivery to advocate effectively and it gives you legitimacy to do it and similarly advocacy on its own is informed, so they're, they're mutually beneficial. And so when Philip Ruddick back in 2006, 2007 says community organisations aren't serving their clients by 
uh, by pursuing political objectives, a law reform or policy, where do you draw the line on the spectrum? Um, you know, we, we gave the example of supporting the White Ribbon uh, campaign. Is that political advocacy? Um, and over the history of community legal centres, there's a range of laws and practices. Laws are constantly being changed and what community organisations should do is feed the voices of the clients that we work with, best if it's not me talking about it, best if the clients are talking about it themselves, but through our experience in community legal centres, helping hundreds of thousands of people a year, it's communicating those voices, those perspectives to government to inform the lawmaking agenda. Um, it's entirely appropriate and uh, it's, it's counterproductive to try and ban it. But that's exactly what's happening in New South Wales and Queensland. Thanks, Hugh. Just down here on your left, Hugh, near the front. Trevor from the Centre Against Violence, Wangaratta. Um, last week there was about a 15-second grab on the news about the incarceration rates in Victoria hitting uh, record levels. And there is a growing industry in Victoria of building prisons. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, long term, what, what are the human rights issues for Victoria as a community when we're he heading down this law and order approach or response to um, challenges in community? Yeah. Uh, um, so there's, uh, there's a range of perspectives that you can approach that issue of, so, and, but the fundamental proposition for me is that prison expansion is bad for our community and bad for community safety. So the starting point is if you want to end violence, if you want to stop murders, stop rapes, rapes, stop assaults, you shouldn't be spending a billion dollars, two billion dollars, which is what Victoria will spend over the next five to ten years on prison expansion. What you should be spending that money on is the initiatives, the programs that have been proven to work to reduce crime and tackling disadvantage reduces crime and, and violence is a human rights abuse so I think we should see it that way and um, so I, I'm interested in saying looking at the human rights framework and saying government has a pos positive obligation to protect right to life, to protect our personal safety and it should be devoting our resources as taxpayers to doing what works, not what sounds good to the Herald Sun and to the media. And so that means investing in the programs that, and there's heaps of evidence out there uh, about what works uh, to reduce crime. Um, so it's uh, irrational to be spending on that and it's interesting in the US that it's the Conservatives who are leading the uh, agenda to stop prison expansion from an economic rationalist point of view because they say why are we spending billions of dollars locking up offenders when we know that at best it's going to have a marginal impact on crime rates, at worst it's actually going to be criminogenic, so it's going to increase the rate of reoffending, and it's going to be horrendously expensive and we know that there's a lot of programs out there that are far more cost effective that work to reduce crime. And then separately, mandatory sentencing policies like that are violations of human rights and, and are applied arbitrarily, disproportionate impact on uh, Indigenous Australians, etc. I think it's very interesting, Hugh, that it, just about every social program that we run now has to demonstrate some sort of business case, cost-benefit analysis, and yet if you apply that criteria to those criteria to uh, prisons, that you, you would never open one, you'd never build one. 
We have one right down here in the front. Hi, Hugh. It's Karen from Alice Springs. Um, I'm just wondering, um, you know, I suppose the intervention is one of the um, major things, that, you know, around Alice in Central Australia that has impacted greatly on our clients and um, the kids and the adults I work with. Um, what are your opinions on the effectiveness of the intervention? Um, so, uh, yeah, well, the starting point is, for me, legitimate aim. What are you trying to do? You're trying to stop abuse. You're trying to stop human rights abuses. So legitimate aim, wrong application. So the human rights framework says, yes, you can restrict rights if it's for a legitimate purpose and it's done in a way that's reasonable and proportionate. And that requires an analysis of saying, are there less restrictive means to achieve that legitimate aim? And that's where I think community consultation, uh, different approaches uh, would, uh, there's a, a strong argument to say different approaches should be adopted where we've got a case which we're waiting on a high court decision on where we're looking at the uh, impact of alcohol ban laws on Indigenous communities and whether they are legitimate uh, special measures under, for the benefit of communities under racial discrimination protections. Um, so in a, yeah, in a nutshell. Uh, legitimate aim, poor implementation. Sure, and and the uh, facade of uh, saying that you know stronger futures applies to the entire Australian population and it's not racial dis racially discriminatory is uh, it's just ridiculous um, uh, and. Because of my talk with Joan, um, we looked at the Gonski report last week, looking at the evidence that shows that five factors which produce educational disadvantage, the evidence is there, we know what we need to do to tackle it. Um, so I'm interested in exploring whether there's a racial discrimination argument to say we could have... We, we know what we need to do to provide better educational outcomes in Indigenous communities, in poor communities, people with disability. We're not doing it. Is there a legal mechanism, is there a human rights mechanism to achieve those results independent of the policy process which is going on or the political process? Okay, I think we have one, on one final question over to your right, about halfway back. Is that right? No, we don't? We have one over here. So we'll make this our, our last question. Just Thank you. Just to my left, almost about three tables back. Hugh. Um, Hugh, it's Alvaro from Creative Suburbs. Um, you mentioned the, I guess, the need for different modes or different approaches to community consultation or the importance of community consultation. And I was wondering if you had any sort of examples of how um, yeah, of those different approaches rather than, I guess, changing the framework of an organisation coming up with an idea and then consulting on it rather than building on community consultation to construct an idea. Yeah, I, I was more talking about uh, education um, and I, I guess what you're asking is more about where do the ideas come from? Do they come from the ground up or the top down? Is that right? Or um, I, I'm interested in... Because I trained as a lawyer, which you know limits. I see 
risk, not opportunity. I, you know, it lim limits my thinking. Um, so I'm interested in breaking out of my lawyer mould. Um, and I did the um, comedy debate here a couple of years ago. And for me, it was, a, I was saying to Joe before, that it was a uh, really refreshing experience to turn you know, having to be a lawyer and saying, you know, this is it and adversarially this is what the position should be and turn it on its head. Um, and after the talk, uh, there was an artist, I don't know if he's here, Bill Kelly, uh, who came up to me and we've since had a long conversation about art and human rights. My wife studies public art and um, she took me to an exhibition at uh, Australian Centre for Contemporary Art where an artist, Jenny Holzer, had... Um, so American Civil Liberties Union had got their hands through freedom of information procedures on uh, Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib autopsy reports. And these are reports that in very, um, uh, uh, very clinical medical language describe the torture of people and people dying through torture. And me as the lawyer's response to that is we'll get these we'll get these um, documents, we'll expose them and we'll write a report about them and we'll go in the media about them. And the artist's response was to take two lines from those reports and put them in neon lights in an art exhibition or project them or... And, and those two lines were so much more powerful than a 100-page report that I would have written as a lawyer or as a human rights activist. So uh, there's, there's a broad spectrum of approaches a community, uh, a human rights perspective would say we should adopt a, an empowerment approach, a community development approach. It should be less me talking about the impact of the intervention but more people directly affected that by the intervention are talking about it and that what's our role as, a human, as human rights advocates to work with those communities to get those voices out there in the, in the public debate. How do we get those photos in the Australian, get those stories in the Australian and, and reframe these issues as uh, through the voices of those who are affected by them? Thank you, Hugh Decretzer, for the delivery of the 2013 Joan Kerner Social Justice Oration. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, We'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.